morning, church. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, good morning to you on the roof and online uh, and here in the Ritz Theater. want to say uh, what a privilege it is to be able to preach this text to you this morning and to share this uh, word from the Lord with you. Uh, I want to encourage you just, uh, Marcos will talk a little bit more about this uh, down the road here this morning, but I want to encourage you, Christmas Eve is this Thursday night. I will be here in, in the Ritz, and I want to encourage you to, whether you're going to join us uh, online or here live, uh, this is going to be an incredible night of, of worship. So I want to encourage you, there's fewer lower hanging fruits uh, than being able to invite your friends, whether it's to watch us online or, or join us online or whether it's uh, to come here at the Ritz. So we'll be taking uh, the necessary precautions as we do so, uh, so you can feel good about doing it, but we'll be at 2, 3, 30, and 5. I want to encourage you to, to, to invite your friends to do that. And then also just a quick word about year-end giving. I know that uh, you may be worn out by now the, the, from getting mail and fundraising letters and appeals and things like that, but I want to let you know real quickly that how much it matters that you give here at NBC. A lot of churches uh, get about a fourth of all of their offerings for the year in the month of December, all right? Uh, and so it's one of those little things that a lot of people don't know. And if, well, you're online and, and maybe you just haven't been here uh, for the year or whatever, but you're sitting there going, man, I'd like to make a difference in the community I live in. Uh, we've been impacted just like everybody else and in some ways more so uh, because of, of uh, what we've been going through over the course of the year. And so if you're behind what God's doing here and you, the Spirit leads you to do so, I hope that you'll consider making an online gift here at the end of the year because it really, 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 really will matter, okay? Um, so... Uh, with that in mind, uh, I'm going to offer you a life-changing experience now, okay? And that's not my sermon. It's the, the sultry sounds of somebody, I mean a truly great musician, uh, that I was introduced to some time ago. And his name uh, is Johnny Bowtie Barstow. Uh, I'm going to play you 30 seconds of this quality song so you can get a feel uh, for how majestic this is, and you can thank me later. Uh, let's go ahead and cue it up. I think we have the first Noel. Here we go. Enjoy the sultry sounds of Johnny Bowtie Barstow. The first Noel the angel did say Oh, he's just getting warmed up. Let's wait. This is the thing on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Oh, there's more. No. drops in like a like a drunk surfer on the wave in the verse two so let me just say this all right we often have this little expression we say to make people who, who are terrible singers feel better and that's something like uh, you know it's the heart that counts etc cetera, etc cetera. I, I do I do question how much it counts when you hear something like that I, I that whole album he's got a Christmas album that that comes from you can look it up on Spotify or your favorite music app and you can enjoy his version of joy to the world you can enjoy the do you hear what I hear, which is very special. Uh, and this guy has a tour. He tours 
He has no problem getting gigs. And in fact, people will pay this guy pretty significant money to come and do his concert, I guess. Now, <laughs> what is it? Why would a person pay money to put themselves through that? I have a hypothesis. It's that we enjoy watching people sing like nobody's listening. Huh? I mean, isn't it great to kind of like be around the corner and you have, hear somebody kind of singing in the shower or, or whatever? In fact, when we were playing that out loud, a young man, who at least for now is my daughter's boyfriend, <laughs> goes, he was, he was heard saying, uh, is that Tim singing? That's what he said. <laughs> Rough, man. I'm not that bad. Holy cow. But he, that's what he thought. So we like hearing like, oh, hey, somebody's singing up there. What are we going to do? Thank God Olivia's in children's ministry right now helping out or she'd be dying and crawling under her chair right now. But all I'm saying is I'm sitting there going, oh, man, it's so great when I can get a little peek into what they, what they sound like if they were singing, if they were singing and no one was listening. And they were singing and nobody, you're going to be all right, Scott. We're just getting warmed up this morning, though. It's, gonna, it's all right. This is, a, this is the most encouraging man alive, Scott Kramer. We love this guy. So, so, so I'm going to suggest to you as we look at the Song of Mary, the Magnificat, we've never really thought about it. I mean, we've done so much stuff. Handel's you know, written symphonies around it. We've written all these big, majestic things around the Magnificat. I doubt that she really sounded you know, like Andrea Bocelli when she sang it, when Mary sang the Magnificat. I don't know that she was as bad as Johnny Bowtie Barso either. I just think she's saying, and it comes across when you read it as a very spontaneous outburst of praise. Her heart's filled with praise because after the initial panic attack she has, when she has to figure out, okay, so I'm going to give birth, and I'm going to give birth to the Messiah, and yet, based on what mom and dad told me about the birds and the bees, we got a problem here. How's this all going to happen? And then the angel, after saying there's nothing impossible with God, she she realizes what's about to take place and she embraces it. I'm not sure that non-Catholic Christians have ever really quite figured out what to do with Mary. I think they're so afraid of some of the excesses that they tend to go on the other side and kind of turn her into like a, an annual appearance in the annual Christmas play at whatever church is going on and, and don't really know uh, what quite to do with her. Um, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that we tend to make either too big or too little of a deal of Mary. But, but when we make too big of a deal of Mary, it's usually because we miss the single biggest point of the text, which if you listen to her song, is not about her. She doesn't see what's about to happen right there, other than the fact that she's amazed that God would use her. The, the whole Magnificat is not really about Mary at all, and it's really uh, you know, not about uh, the things that we tend to sing about in our, even in a lot of churches today. We live in a world where humans have been brought so high and God brought so low, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Yep. And one of the things that the Magnificat does is it reminds us of what the theologians would call the great reversal. That the higher brought low, that the lower exalted, and that Jesus has a way of paradoxically changing the world that we live in in the human heart as well. When the angel comes to Mary and tells her that she's been chosen to bear the Messiah by miraculous conception, she is full of all the normal questions, the kind that you wouldn't very naturally ask. If you were, somebody came and said, you're going to carry the Messiah in your womb, she would ask, for instance, how is that possible? I mean, she knows the stork does not deliver babies in Bethlehem. How is this going to happen? Well, 
then the angel says there is nothing that's impossible with God. And once that comes out, it seems that at that point when Mary hears those words, her uncertainty seems to kind of evaporate. And she declares that she is, to quote her, the handmaiden of the Lord. And she surrenders to God's plan. And she doesn't do it begrudgingly. Very important. She's scared, but once she's told you can trust God, nothing's impossible with God, then she embraces it completely. And not only just, I mean, far better than, say, Moses grabs a hold of his calling or these other things. She just grabs it, and not only that, then she sings a song of praise. And that wonder, that, that just sense of celebration that God would have anything to do with me and that he would bless me with this immense honor given my station in life is so incredible. I've got something to say. And so she just starts singing. And so we get to peek around the corner and listen to her song today. Mary says, this is Luke 1, 46 to 45. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the, prouds and the, uh, the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. He's, uh, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. All right, so I'm going to give you a, a few insights today maybe to pull out of here. Uh, and then the sermon will be yours. Uh, when I teach hermeneutics, which is a fancy word for interpretation, uh, or Old Testament or New Testament or anything to, to young people, one of the things that I try to help them say, and you've heard me say it here at New Vintage before, in general, when you're interpreting the Bible, okay, it can't mean for you what it never meant for them. All right, so when you're doing that, you don't want to run to the application part and say, well, here's what I see in here, and read 21st century American Western stuff back into that. What you need to try to do is go, okay, how, would, how did Mary understand her own song? You start right there first, then you work out to the Gospel of Luke, and then you work from Luke, time, place, setting, everything. How did the people who heard it first understand it? Then once you have all of that, then you start working your, your, your way out. Okay, so that's where this is coming from. So I understand that when you hear this, you may go, oh, that's a little different. I thought Mary was about, you know, you know this and that and the other. Uh, let, let me suggest that it begins right here with the calling. It begins with what happens right before the song starts. Right. Uh, when the conductor, so to speak, taps the, the podium before the song starts. What, what just took place? What triggered this? Well, it's a very a beautiful but odd song that really does celebrate the beauty of calling. And how God uses people who are insignificant. Amen. I mean, she does get excited about the fact that she's like, boy, this means big things for me. From now on, everybody's going to call me blessed and, and all of this. But, but she's amazed mostly that he would look upon her low estate, she says. And that he would ask me to do this. It's just, and then she goes, it's just another example of what he has done throughout history. So she goes back in time and starts talking about things. And she does something we'll talk about in a second, which is kind of talk about things in the future using the past tense, which is interesting. It's a way of declaring something's going to happen as though it's already happened. This is a song of a woman who 
became an unwed mother. She's conceived at a time she didn't choose. She's called not only to go through the public shame of an unwed pregnancy in a culture that was revolted at such, but she thinks that this will be her biggest challenge. Her biggest challenge will be 33 years later on a hill called Golgotha, when the child that she bore is nailed to the cross. She'll witness her son's public execution. Nonetheless, she sings a song of praise for this calling to give birth to and be a mother to the Messiah. See, it isn't just what she planned or how she planned it, certainly, but she rejoices because God has called her to this. Just as Hannah does in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Mary praises God for what he is about to do and for the part that she's privileged to play in his plan. Now, was she worthy of this great blessing? I mean, it's highly unlikely. What human being could be worthy of this? It's, it's unlikely that she was worthy of that, and that's why God picked her. Just like if you look throughout human history and, and how God interacts with his people, it's not because they're impressive. In fact, that's exactly what he says to Israel. I picked you because you're totally unimpressive. Yep. Amen. That's what he says to him. He says, you are ordinary. Right. And if I picked impressive people, then they'd get all the credit. They'd take credit for it. They would think, look how smart I am. Look how beautiful I am. Look how charming I am. Look how brilliant I am. Look how this and that and the other. But that's not what God is doing this for. He's not trying to exalt humans. He's doing God. And we should be humbled that he would even be mindful of us, much less ask us to play a part. You ever see one of those movies where I guess they call it a breakthrough performance. Where somebody new that you've never seen in a movie before just shows up on screen and absolutely just shreds it. I mean, just, you go, who in the world is that? See, movie directors, though, and they, they look for people who they think have talent that just haven't been recognized yet. God looks often for people who are untalented. Right. They, they, they don't speak well. They don't you know, they're, they're not anybody that is not of low estate. It's pretty rare that he goes to the elites. Now, it's not impossible. He does do that. And just like in our proclivity, the point is we often will grab that and kind of, because we, we can't resist playing politics with almost anything we do these days, we'll grab that and say, see, he loves the poor more. No, that's not the point either. The point of this particular song, what Mary is trying to say, is not that he reached that far down, the content of her song says, the fact that he reaches down at all. Right. See, the gap that we see from the lowest to the highest in our society to God is, I mean, is nothing. The gap from our highest to God is very high. Mm -hmm. That's a big gap. So for God to reach down at all and in the person and work of Jesus, do it so majestically and brilliantly, so undeservedly to do all of those things and, and then to lift up those who are on the bottom I mean, of the society and pull them up is not a song of praise to people who are broke. Right? If, if it were that, we should all just go be as poor as we could because then God would love us more. Right? And in fact, we shouldn't help anybody because when I give them a dollar, I just made them less lovable in the eyes of God. See, that's the kind of stuff that we do when we, when we kind of, uh, we read our own stuff into this. Mary's just going, nobody has really noticed me before. And boy, he outdid himself this time. He's always done it. 
He's called people to follow him. He's called people to, to, to carry out his orders, his plans. Uh, you know, whether sometimes it's, it's as simple as, as Abraham is just going, you know, random farmer guy out there. Hey, Abraham, pick up your stuff and go. Okay, and off he goes. He didn't pick Abraham because he was the smartest guy in the room. That becomes obvious if you read the life of Abraham. He is not the smartest guy in the room. He's often foolhardy, impetuous, impatient. And yet the fact that God calls him says a lot more about God than it does about us. Even our most extraordinary people are extremely ordinary in the eyes of God. Now, there's a lot more to Mary than the Christmas story. She, of course, does more than just bear Christ. She's his mother for 33 years. I don't know if they used diapers back then or not, but, but she changed them. She nursed him. She tried to protect him when everybody thought he was crazy. She marveled at his preaching. She asked for his help at the wedding at Cana, for instance, and other places. She marveled at his preaching. She was there as they nailed him to the cross, as Jesus looked at her with love in his eyes and says, Woman, behold your son. So as difficult as childbirth is, and I'm, I'm willing to bet uh, anybody who's been a mom for more than about three years would agree with this. Being a mom is way harder than giving birth, as hard as childbirth is. Being a mom, much harder. Okay, yeah, I know. Well, somewhere, you know, people sitting out in the cafe and on the street just went, amen. They all, they all felt it. Okay, being a mom is extremely hard. So it's being a father, obviously, but, but here... Being a mother, being not just the birth mother of Jesus, but the lifelong mother of Jesus. And then, you know, I mean, to, to be there to witness the end. And so she accepts it. She accepts that calling. And so the question becomes, um, whatever calling God has laid upon my life, do I celebrate it? Or do I feel like it, the calling I've received is beneath me? When in reality, what I should understand is whatever calling I've been given, and no matter how high I rise, I'm still beneath him. Yep. So Mary embraces that calling. Number two, whenever you're reading this story, remember God is the hero of the story. Right. Always. In almost any Bible story you read, in any Bible story you read, God is the hero of the story. Our need to identify with the characters and all that makes a lot of sense. And when you're applying, I think that's a good thing to do. But he's always the hero of the story. I've heard sermons about Mary most of my life. Uh, many of them laud Mary essentially for allowing God to do what he wanted to do in her life. And that's right. In fact, I made that very point just a second ago. Okay. I think she's worth emulating in that regard. But um, I think one of the keys here is that if we listen to Mary... In her song, she doesn't see herself as the hero. She says, he's done great things for me. So from the opening tap of the conductor's baton on the stand to the end, she doesn't see herself as the heroine of the story at all. She sees God, who looked upon her low estate, God, who does the great reversal. God, who looks down even upon the smallest and weakest and lifts them up by grace, not because they deserve it. If we listen to her, she says, praise God for looking on my low estate. It's what the theologians call the great reversal. Luke 1, 52 
and 53 says, He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. Who has? He has. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Again, the, the act of being poor is not the heroism in the story. It's being open. It's being willing. What's amazing is that God would look upon people both rich and poor and lead them up. And keep in mind that, you know, our version of rich and poor compared to theirs, you know, their rich were like 99%, you know, nobody was anywhere close. There was rich and there was poor. There was nothing in between in that world. God is no respecter of persons, the Bible says. And he loves all people, regardless of their economic standing. To whom much is given, much will be required. That's clear. But he doesn't love one more than the other. In here, what she talks about in the great reversal, this is not a hymn of identity politics. It's a hymn of praise to God who regards everyone, even Mary in her lowest state. The great reversal is God's utter lack of regard for status or power or wealth or sharing his grace it's not a, a, a you know some like dramatic affirmative action program in the sky for rich and poor no 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 it's that he doesn't care we care he doesn't care he'll reach down it doesn't matter how low they are and grab them even the marys of the world poor faceless in that world. He'll reach down even to her and grab her. In other cases, it's somebody like Job, who's extremely wealthy. Abraham, very wealthy. Solomon, very wealthy. David, shepherd boy at first, eventually very wealthy. Does he use them? Sure. But he also uses people like Mary. He uses people, you know, like, I mean, just the lowest of the low. Which then reminds me of how good he is. We tend to look for the people that we recognize all those little things in. Oh, you know, hey, they, they might be able to do this for me. Oh, they might be able to do this, or they might be able to achieve this, or boy, if we had them up here, you know, those kind of things. We look that way, but it's not just those people. It's everybody. And so here Mary becomes that person. God reaches down and raises her up. When his own son is born, he's not born into wealth. He's born in a manger. And then after that, he's on the run for his life. And yet, that's how God works. The great reversal is God's lack of regard for status, power, or wealth in sharing his grace. He both brings the mighty down from their thrones and he exalts those of humble estate. They come here, they go there. He doesn't care. Honestly, what do we think we can offer God that would impress Him? Do you think that that with your smarts or... What what do you know that He doesn't know? And didn't know about you before you were born? With with the, the riches you have? Everything belongs to Him. Like, what, what do we think we have to offer God to impress Him? 
And I, I wonder if, as we hear Mary talk, we'll let her do her own singing here and listen to her own verbiage in the culture in which she lived. Maybe in our time, there needs to be another great reversal. And that's this one. We tend to see ourselves here and God here. And the great reversal needs to go like that. That like her, we need to realize that at best, we are the Lord's handmaidens. At best. And that's the reversal that needs to take place in the hearts and minds of many. That we are the handmaidens of the Lord. Psalm 8, 3 and 4 puts it brilliantly. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Who are we, honestly, that you would even mess with us? But Christmas is all about God saying, I am fundamentally going to mess with you in the best possible way. I'm going to take all, all you extraordinary people and the complete mess you've made of the universe that I created. I'm going to mess with you now by making everything reconciled. I'm going to restore everything you've shattered and broken by shattering and breaking my son. Now that makes me then sit there and go, boy, now who am I, who am I to presume upon the grace of God or presume that to teach the word of God or presume to lead the church of God or you know see that's the great reversal that the that the Mary story really calls for in our world is is that the miracle here is not that Mary is willing to do it it's that God is willing to do it let me say that again because that's the whole point the miracle of this story is not that Mary is willing to do it it's that God is willing to do it. He is always the hero of the story. And then God's grace is always present tense. I talked about the language a little bit um, that's used here. So Mary praises God for what he's done in a way of, of announcing uh, what God is going to do. So she talks about what he's done, but she does it as a way of describing what he's going to do in the future. Um, let's pretend I had not bought a Christmas present for my wife yet. It might be, you know, Tim's a great husband. He has gone to the mall. Um, okay, so I'm using the past, but I might be doing it as a way of projecting, okay, he's going to go to the mall in the future and get a Christmas gift for his wife. All right, so the language here, she's declaring what's going to happen in the future using past tense, which is really an interesting uh, way to approach this. This particular use of the past tense, they call it the errorist, okay, in Greek. Now, there's your boring uh, scholarly moment for the day. Um, that, that expresses what is timelessly true. It past, present, future, without differentiation. But Mary is expressing her confidences in the certainty as though they already were. She is so sure, as she sings, that God will do what is promised, that she proclaims it as accomplished fact. That shift of tenses from the present, you can see this in verse 46b, like the second half of 46. She goes present, then she goes to the past in 47 and 48, and then she goes to the future. She bounces around, it shows the broadening scope of why she's praising God. Okay, saying he did, in her mind, is saying he will. He did it, that tells me he will do it. He's done it. He's doing it. He will. That's the grace of God and how it works. 
I remember when uh, I was taking a preaching class, one of my professors talked about the importance of using the present tense. And he said, you know, you can, when, you, when, you, when you tell a biblical story, I can tell it as though Mary did this and Mary had that and Mary this and that and the other. I can talk about Mary sings or I can say she sung or singed or whatever that word is. Yeah. But are you more interested in what's happening or what happened? Most people will, are more interested in what's happening right now. See, in the kingdom of God, that's the beauty of it. It happened, it's happening, and it will happen. All of it. All right? So, so linguistically, kind of as you unpack it all, I know it seems a little boring on the surface, but it really helps you unearth what she's trying to say. She's saying, you know what? He's done great things for me. He's done this. He's done this. He will do it he's, because he's done it. So she takes the past tense and throws it into the future as a way of declaring something that's already done. My daughter has cleaned her room. Wouldn't it be great to speak it into existence? If you could just do that. That's kind of what she's doing. She's singing and she's saying, he's done it. The grace of God is, past, is not just a past tense thing. It's present and it's future. He has done great things. God says he will do great things. But never forget, he's doing great things, but his grace is, is still present tense. And then lastly, the light is what we live in as Christians. His light is what it means to live abundant life. Worship follows wonder is another way we could put it. The psalmist once sang, better is one day in God's courts than a thousand elsewhere. One thought of, of God's is greater than the fullness of our thoughts over a lifetime. One moment of God's time is worth more than our eternity. One glance from Him is worth a thousand spotlights on earth. One touch of his hand is greater than all the efforts of a thousand generations. One calling from God is worth more than that of every other idol of this age and any other put together. See, our worship doesn't just lead us to sing. It leads us to a life characterized by worship. And so Mary will go forward from this. It doesn't stop with giving birth. It doesn't stop in the delivery room. It starts with her embracing the calling and then because of the jubilation that she feels in here, because she understands the calling, then she, that changes the way that she lives. She now becomes Jesus' mother. Okay, not just his birth giver, his mother. So then the question becomes, all right then, uh, what should my life look like in light of the calling that I have received? How should that change the life that I've been given? There was a preaching professor named Fred Craddock. I've shared this illustration with you before, but he was talking to a bunch of pastors, and he was talking about living a life of faith, and he said, he said, we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Like, here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all. So like, people who were baptized a couple weeks ago down at the beach, there, there's one sense in which it feels that way. I'm taking it all, laying it all out there. Okay, that's true. But then what happens at that moment, and Craddock captures as well, he says, the reality is God sends us back to the bank and has us cash in the thousand for quarters. And then we're asked to go through life putting out 25 cents here, 50 cents there, listen to the kid who has troubles and say, instead of saying get lost or go to, a, go, to, go to a ministry team meeting, give some time to somebody in a nursing home. Giving our life to Christ is like that. And so Mary, is, her greatest act is probably not just saying, okay, I will give birth to Jesus. It is being willing to do all of the things that she does for the rest of his life. It's not just the song. It's the life that emerges from the song. 
And so she'll go forward, and at the, whether it's the, you know, um, the wedding at Cana or that panic she has when he's lost and she can't find him and she sees him there in the, in the temple preaching. What are you doing here? We were worried sick about you. Didn't you, you. didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? He says, I wonder, that hurt. You know, and on and on it goes. Wedding, you know, wedding at Cana, hey, I don't know what to do, but, but he does. So, Jesus, can you hook us up here? Because the, the wine has run out. What does this have to do with me? He says. And she says, just do whatever he says. And so then he takes it and he, he does his thing. And the next thing you know, there's so much wine. It's the best wine they've ever had. And they're just vats and vats and vats left over. And then she keeps engaging and loving her son all the way to the cross and beyond. So Mary's yes to God seems like putting $1,000 on the table. But what Mary does is much harder than that. She definitely gives God a yes, a huge down payment, if you will, but she lives her life then putting out 25 cents here, 50 cents there at a time. She says yes to Jesus, and she continues saying yes all her life. She says yes to the arduous trip to Bethlehem, then on to Egypt. She is there in the temple when Simeon blesses Jesus and says to her words that she doesn't understand when Simeon says to her, a sword will pierce your own soul too. She's there looking for Jesus when at 12 years old, he stays behind in the temple to listen to the teacher. She's there at Cana calling on Jesus to perform a miracle to begin his ministry. She's there when some people thought he was crazy, offering to say, hey, you know what? He's, he's nuts. Just let him come home to mama. We'll take him back home and we'll, 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 we'll get him all settled up so that they don't do harm to him. She, she tries to protect him. And she's there at the foot of the cross on the faithful day that he's crucified. She is there through it all when it was hard, when it was painful, and when it was dangerous. She lived a life of faith over the long haul. And that's really what she means to us today. And so today we take time out to think about, about Mary because God calls us regular, ordinary people to be Mary in our world today. Models of hope and courage and faith. People willing to accept the calling that God may lay on our life. And when it happens, to see that calling through to, to welcome Jesus in any way, shape, or form we're asked to do, and then to carry that through on a daily basis all our life. She helps us see not only the importance of submitting to God's will for our lives, even when it's different than our own, she shows us throughout the life of Jesus what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let me, as we begin to gather around the Lord's table, let me ask you this question. What song are you supposed to sing? What would be your song? really doesn't matter how it sounds. It could sound like Johnny Bowtie Barstow, or worse. But are you aware that God's done great things for you? Are you aware of your lowest state and his highest state? What song would God want you to sing? Because God is calling you too through her song. The worship that follows wonder, if you will, isn't just found in this song. It's found in a lifetime of faithfulness to Christ. Our worship can be heard in our songs. It's seen and experienced through our lives. And just as Mary's saying, her soul magnifies the Lord. It magnifies God through her exuberant praise and through an admirable life of surrender. 
It's what we remember right now. We're going to take the bread and the cup. You should have gotten a little bag with that in, in, in when you walked in. If you didn't and you would like one to take communion, go ahead and put your hand in there. We have some ushers that are going to come down and they'll see you. No shame in it at all. We'd love to be able to bless you in some way, shape, or form. We do this every week here at New Vintage Church. We take the bread and the cup, as Jesus asked us to do. And we do it in remembrance of him. So we remember the one this morning who initiated the great reversal. That great reversal, bringing the high low and the low higher. And we ask him today for another great reversal, which is to make sure that if we are the ones who placed ourselves high, that we would be brought low and that he would be lifted high in our lives. Let's pray.